I noticed you were messing with my grocery list again this morning. Uh, what do you mean? You know, all the bizarre things that you add to my list. Oh, yeah, like uh, kangaroo milk or sea cucumbers, my favorite. I wish you'd pick some up. <laughs> yeah, like those. Well, at least you kept it G-rated this time. Well, you know what? I fancy myself as a brilliant writer, and your shopping list is one of my favorite writing exercises. Really? I thought you were being flirty. Well, I suppose in my own way, I am. everyone and here we are celebrating what people love to do creatively by giving them a voice i'm rod jones and i'm Ingie jones welcome to the thought row podcast we invite you to subscribe wherever you listen and you can also go to our website at thoughtrowpodcast.com and listen there directly yeah that, that's a good idea actually yeah. yes and we would love to hear from you and don't be shy you can always go there we have a contact page on our website, so you can share with us your thoughts and maybe your questions. Yes, and we would love to hear from you. That is why our show is called Thought Row Podcast, so we want to hear your thoughts. Yes, yeah, thought-provoking thoughts, which reminds me, how about your thoughtful quote? Okay. Well, my quote for this week is, or this episode, is archaeology is the peeping tom of the sciences. It is the sandbox of men who care not where they are going. They merely want to know where everyone else has been. And that is by Jim Bishop. You know, for some reason, I suspected your quote would have something to do with archaeology seeing how our guest is going to be an yes. archaeologist yes i'm so excited about her and and i wanted to you know be in in concert with what, what we're doing a little later on in the interview well you know what i really like that quote i think you found a really good one and you know it's not only about digging in the sand although i personally like to do that i think it has to do with urban archaeology yeah or everything that we discovered no matter so where true. we are, what we're doing. I guess it really gets down to seeing, hearing, and feeling. It absolutely is. And, you know, in the times that we've found different things, it's always fascinating to see different people's lives. And I can't imagine, you know, digging up something from ancient Egypt or Byzantine period or something like that. That well, would be amazing. Well, and the amazing. other part of it, too, is crafting the story that goes with it. Yeah. If you're standing there and you have a bunch of things that you found, even if it's something you found in an old abandoned home, yeah. and you pick up different, I'll call them relics. <laughs> they are up, relics. You they pick are. up these different relics yeah. and you hold them up in your hand and you look at them and you go, God, I wonder what the family did with this. I mean, it could be a broken teacup. And then you start going, you start telling yourself a story. Oh, well, maybe this teacup was an heirloom mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. it was handed down by the great great grandmother and then all of a sudden it's broken into a bunch of pieces i know kind of sad it's a little sad okay but, but it's a story it is it is but now it's going to be your turn rod and we're ready for your rod's motivational moment 
Well, I don't know how motivational this is going to be, but this is something that I've been thinking about. Okay. And it has something kind of to do a little bit with archaeologists. We are archaeology. We all have histories, both good and bad, trapped within our minds. Yeah. Some are best left deeply buried mm-hmm. and others should be brought to the surface and celebrated. Well, I guess that's what makes you the rich, vibrant person that you are when you have all of these experiences, the good and the bad. Well, I equate that to, again, a little bit of it has to do with how you feel about yourself Mm -hmm. and how important it is to maintain a good positive outlook about yourself. And if you bring up negative thoughts, they don't necessarily make you feel good about yourself. Yeah. In fact, they could be downright destructive, not to get into, you know, any kind of real psychology here, because I certainly am not one. Right. Uh, But Good thoughts are much better than bad thoughts. Right. And then everyone is having a human experience and not everything is going to be perfect all the time. But you, I guess you apply it to where like the negative experiences, what is it teaching you? Oh, that's a good point. So you're not like just dwelling in the in, in the crap. No, you know? you know what? That's a very good point because these are all lessons in life and we may not like some of them. But interestingly enough, they when you look back in retrospect, you often say, boy, I don't want to do that again, but I sure learned a lot from it. Yeah. And it's really funny when I know this is probably true for you and it definitely is true for me, that some of the most trying times you learn the most, even though they really suck a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah, they can be pretty crummy. Right, right. Um, and I think you kind of have to avoid people and maybe the news which can also bring on stress and anxiety. You don't need that in your life. There's not much you can do about it. So so getting back to that last thing I said in my little quote thing is bring forth, you know, the good things and celebrate them. Right, exactly. And put the energy out there of, of celebrating. You bet. And then also, I think it's about discovery when you think about it and what it means for creativity, you know? Well, creativity, any form of creativity is all about discovery. You know, you may be sitting at a piano and pound out, dun, 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 what, three, three notes? Four notes, four notes, dun, 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 four notes. Four notes, which turned out to be the most famous symphony ever. Absolutely. Uh, And you had to consider the fact that Beethoven was sitting in front of his keyboard mm-hmm. and he clinked a couple of notes out and all of a sudden look what he ended up with. But it's also in photography. Yeah. I think photography is another thing that a person can do that really causes you to focus. And when you're looking on your phone or you've got a camera and you're looking through the eyepiece, all of a sudden all the distractions that are all around you just seem to disappear. They should be disappearing. Even if you're taking a picture of a loved one, You're trying to focus on them. And of course, you're always trying to get the good expression from them. But all the garbage, all the stuff that's going on around them and around you just seems to disappear. And it's just kind of a one-on-one thing. But that's discovery and that's creative discovery. So true. What were you going to say about photography? You had something interesting to say. Oh, yeah. You know, I noticed that when you photograph, Rod, it's so interesting because you pay attention to so many different things in detail and it's amazing. The lighting, the composition, the the subject, but also, you know, making an interesting story. 
I mean, I see many people that do one or the other or a couple of things, but when you truly can bring all of those elements together, but plus bring emotion to that photo in that little tiny rectangle, that is really where you, you know, you shine as an artist. As you know, that's one of my, Yeah. I mean, I was a commercial photographer for many years, but the thing out there, there's a couple of things that irritate me when I look at other people's photographs Mm. and that is if they take a beautiful portrait of somebody and then there's a post behind them coming right out of their head or they take a beautiful sunset and they don't have the horizon straight. Makes me think that the ocean is going to pour off the edge of the earth (laughs) because the horizon is not straight. But yeah, seeing in any form of creativity, no matter what you do, is critically important. So true. But while we're on the subject of discovery, let's bring on our guest. Okay, so today we're going to be speaking with Monica L. Smith. And she's an archaeologist, and I can't wait for her yeah, interview. Yeah, I'm pretty excited about this episode. Monica, welcome to the Thought Row podcast. I know both Angie and I have been really excited yeah. to have an archaeologist as a guest. I think we both know that that is a very unique area of creativity. Yes. Hi, Monica. It's so good to have you with us today. And this promises to be a very interesting discussion. And I am very excited to hear what you have to say. Well, thank you very much for having me. And thank you for welcoming me into your beautiful creative community. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you so much. Well, you're going to be a great guest for us. I think so. And our listeners, of course. Absolutely. And then before we officially start our interview, we always like to ask our guests, what did you have for breakfast this morning, Monica? So today, you know, this is the time of the year when I like to have what I call a Turkish breakfast, which is pita bread and then honey and walnuts and dried apricots and olives and sometimes some cheese if I've got the right kind of cheese around and some black tea with sugar. And I like to take that outside on the balcony of our little apartment. And I sort of pretend that I'm a couple of blocks away from the Bosphorus and it's Uh hot outside. So it feels like Istanbul. And uh, that's my Turkish breakfast. Ah, that sounds perfect. And that's exactly a Turkish breakfast. So breakfast so good for you. Well, you can relate because you've had breakfast in Yeah, and on the Bosphorus. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. So yeah, good for you. What a lovely breakfast. I know. I think we may copy it. <laughs> we do sometimes. Yeah, that, sometimes. that's one that I would definitely like to copy. Yeah. Well, moving on, you know, archaeology archaeology is an interesting field of research and science. When you were growing up, was this a profession, Monica, that you thought you would ever pursue? So many people, if I meet them on a bus or an airplane, will say, oh my gosh, I always wanted to be an archaeologist when I was a kid. It's very exciting. You must dig up dinosaurs. I saw this thing on TV and so on and so forth. (laughs) So what's interesting is that I was not that person. I was not that kid that grew up and thought they always wanted to be an archaeologist. I actually came into archaeology from a long and circuitous route through a number of other things. I actually started out as an English major. I was going to study 
European literature and English literature of the Renaissance period. I started taking Latin because that was, of course, the lingua franca of the oh, time. Sure. Yeah. And then I gradually sort of migrated into doing uh, classical civilizations, Latin, and then I took ancient Greek. And then it was only after I had started graduate school where I had gone to do a master's degree in Latin. You know, talk about a very obscure career path. An interesting one, though, I might say. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. And so I started taking some archaeology courses because pretty soon I realized that I was not going to be the kind of person who could sit around and read a dead language all day. I wanted to do something Mm -hmm. much more active. And then as I started taking more archaeology courses and then doing some field work, I eventually completely went in that direction towards field archaeology and doing digs and surveys and traveling. And so that was the evolution of me becoming an archaeologist. And are you glad you did? Oh, absolutely. I have the best job in the world. I think that if I were not an archaeologist, my second career choice would have been pilot. And I do I do think about that sometimes, that I would have loved to have been a pilot. I actually took for my PhD exams, when I passed my PhD exams, my husband gave me a flight lesson as a present. Oh, how nice. And that is an amazing feeling to be going down the runway and you pull back and you're in the air. And that I would have loved to do. That is not necessarily compatible with being an archaeologist because... (laughs) I don't know. You You could fly yourself to a location. I I don't know. Before Angie asks the next question, I wanted to say, haven't they discovered archaeological sites from the air? What are those, Lascaux? The drawings that you see in the earth from the oh, air, you can only see them from the, the air. NASA Nas, that's yeah. it. Right, right. And in fact, we're very indebted to people who fly and photograph archaeological sites because this is something that people have been doing since the 1920s. And many of those aerial photographs record landscapes that are no longer present. You know, people have built over them. Mm-hmm. People have farmed over them. So yes, archaeology from the air, archaeology underwater, um, archaeology under the microscope. There are so many ways that we use the power of vision to be able to to talk about the past. But the thing about being a pilot is that if you're going to be Serious, you have to do it very regularly. You, know, oh, yeah. you really have to fly yeah. all the time. I mean, it's not it's not like other hobbies where if you don't do it for six months or a year, it doesn't affect your skills that much. But mm-hmm. you know, if you're going to be up there in a machine, you definitely want to make sure that you have good practice. So I reconciled myself to the fact that I was, you know, not going to be a pilot. I was going to be an archaeologist, and I'm glad about that every single day. Oh, I can imagine. But personally, I'm so glad that pilots do practice every day. (laughs) They need to. (laughs) Okay. So my question is, where are you originally from? And tell us a little bit about your background. So I'm originally from California and I live in Los Angeles now. So I'm back in my ancestral homeland, which I very much appreciate. And One of the things that really marked my childhood was that I was able to do a little traveling, which, you know, when people hear that, they think like, oh my goodness, that's that's so nice. It's a a bit of privilege and so on. But the catch is that all of my family was in France. My mother came to the United States 
as a young bride. And so we really didn't have any family here in the US. And it was only when I was about nine years old and we went to France for the first time that I had a chance to meet my grandmother and my cousins and other people of my family. And so I really think of my time in France as a kid was not about being in an exotic foreign locale. It was about being with family. And that really had a profound effect on me. And maybe that was where the seeds of archaeology began. Oh, because yeah. Definitely, yeah. The history that's there. Absolutely. In, in France, in other parts of Europe, I was able to, you know, travel around and go to Italy because uh, my family was very close to the Italian border. And there, the past is just part of the natural fabric of the village and the Mm -hmm. town and the city. You see churches that are hundreds of years old. You walk down the street and they're excavating some Roman ruins that are 2,000 years old. And so the past is not a foreign concept or an unfamiliar concept. The past is just completely part of everyday life in a way that is not quite the same in a place like Los Angeles. No, I mean, they have thousands of years in many cases, even more history that they can dig up. It's pretty incredible. Yeah. You know, I, I, you touched on this briefly, but I would like to know, we would like to know what you specifically do as an archaeologist, what you do. So I'm a university faculty member, so I teach courses and I also do field work. Most of my field work is in India with my Indian colleagues and many, many wonderful Indian students from different Indian universities who have come to work with us. And uh, of course, in pre-COVID times, I was going to India quite frequently for research projects that involved excavations, they involved survey, they involved archival work, they involved many teams of people who were part of our research enterprise. And even though we're not going to the field now, we certainly have many things that we're doing with the data. So In many countries now, all of the physical materials, you know, the things we dig up, are kept in local museums and repositories. And we bring back data. We bring back photographs. We bring back spreadsheets. We bring back measurements. And so that's what I also spend a lot of my time doing here. Do you share that with your students then? Yes, absolutely. So I'm working with some graduate students and some undergraduate students who are doing their own research projects with some of the information. So, for example, I'm working with one graduate student who is looking at the animal bones from the research projects that we've done and is doing a PhD dissertation on that. I've worked with other students who have looked at other components like different kinds of pottery designs different kinds of ornamentation. So really an archaeological project becomes the springboard for many other people to have some information that they can use for their own ideas and projects. Oh, very interesting. That is very interesting. So how does a person learn to become an archaeologist? Well, I'm going to tell you that there's no great secret about being an archaeologist. It's really about powers of observation. And many times you'll have people come and volunteer on archaeological projects. And I've found that the best archaeologists are really people like librarians and dentists. Why? Mm. Because they're really good at making observations 
and they're really good at writing things down when they see something. So that's really all it takes to be an archaeologist is good powers of observation. The analogy of the dentist makes a lot of sense. It does make sense. (laughs) They're very good at documenting. (laughs) (laughs) And they're very good at at detail Detail work and looking for stuff. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. So I'm going to turn you into an archaeologist right now. Next time you walk down your street, start looking at things like the sidewalk. Start looking at things like, you know, the little cuts in the street. Start looking at things like bolts on the sidewalk in front of the coffee shop. Look at little scars on the wall. And then you realize the scar used to belong to a phone booth that was attached to the wall. But we don't have those anymore. And the bolt in the sidewalk used to belong to a newspaper box. But we don't have those anymore. And the crack in the sidewalk is because, you know, there were some repairs that were undertaken there that they had to cut the sidewalk. Once you start looking for all those things, you're going to read your neighborhood like an archaeological book. That's interesting. What we often see because of where we live, when we walk down a road, we see gouges in the pavement that the snowplow left last winter. (laughs) Yes, exactly. And a batch of feathers on the side of the road because somebody had their lunch. Had their lunch. Yeah, because we live in the mountains. So there's a lot of kind of interesting more rural aspects of, of, I guess, archaeology as well appear. But I like, I like your, I uh, love the, the demonstration. Phone yeah, and, and that's the so true. Newsstand. And, Gosh. Then, and so many people at this day and age don't even remember that there were phone booths no, everywhere. No, they don't. They have to watch an old movie to see somebody call up somebody in a phone booth and they go, why are they doing that? Yeah. Yeah. I, I have to ask you this question. It might be a little frivolous, but I want to ask it anyway. You know, there's been some really famous popular movies about archaeologists and archaeology. Do you think that those movies have had an influence on people wanting to pursue a career in archaeology? I think that's definitely true. Of course, that's true of any profession. You know, every time they come out with a new CSI, we have a bumper crop of students who want to become forensic analysts. And so having something in the popular media is certainly something that awakens people's imaginations to possibilities and to creativities. So uh, yes, although Indiana Jones was not an an ethical or careful archaeologist, (laughs) you'll still find that, you know, posters of Raiders of the Lost Ark are hung on the graduate archaeology labs of the world. Really? That's interesting. Well, he made it cool. He did make it cool. He made it cool, and even then, though he probably wasn't the best archaeologist ever, well, because I'm think, sure he wasn't very careful. I think like Monica said, the yeah. ethical aspect yeah. of it. But he had a cool hat. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so everybody, all the archaeologists probably had to go out and buy a hat like that. Mm-hmm. Although I'm sure you well, cover your head when you're out there on a date. Yeah, I would think so. Yes, archaeology is a hat-wearing profession. You know, and that's that's something that often surprises people about archaeology, too. And there are many things that you don't see on TV and History Channel, Discovery Channel, and so on. You don't see people sitting in a lab day after day, sorting out, you know, little pieces of rock from little pieces of bone. You don't see people who've been trudging across the landscape with a 15-pound backpack full of metal stakes to stake out sites and then map them. You know, they, yeah. this is a lot of you know difficult 
heavy work sometimes that is not necessarily the the glamorous part that you see on television and probably not the the weather conditions are probably not all that That's wonderful what I was going to say how do you tolerate the heat because India is is very warm and humid and humid how do you tolerate the heat monica when you're there so I would say that it's something that you get used to because it is just part of the environment. So I'll tell you about a summer that I had once, three very hot experiences. Mm -hmm. I did a summer field season in India just before the monsoon because I wanted to see what the weather conditions would have been like other than the nice times of year when we generally go and do field work. And that was really instructive because by about nine o'clock in the morning, you did not see any living creature on the landscape except mm. for the archaeologists. Like, there was <laughs> <Yeah>. no, <laughs> no dog, no person, no cow, nothing, just us out there. And that gave me a much better appreciation for what it was that ancient people went through to mm. create their sites and to farm their land. And then the second experience that same summer, I was very close to Diyarbakir in southern Turkey. Oh, yeah. And it was suffocatingly hot. Mm -hmm. It was very, very difficult. The project director there said that any decision that you make after about 10 o'clock in the morning is probably not a good decision. And then the oh, third wow. hot experience was in the American Southwest. And that was sort of my extra long summer of archaeology. And they were all unbelievably hot in their own way. But it was a it was a great learning experience. And I guess I just tolerate heat more than other people. Please don't ask me to go work in the Arctic. Uh, I don't think that <laughs> yeah. would be a great idea. <laughs> exactly. My goodness. Well, that's good for you. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I know when we had our initial conversation with you, Monica, you shared with us the concept of piecing from fragments. Could you elaborate on this philosophy of yours? So one of the things I appreciate about the creative community that you have here is that you have many people who are artists or writers or painters or welders and people who work with the earth, people who work with plants. And all of us are working with little pieces of things. Especially in archaeology, we rarely find anything that is complete. Uh, we find broken pieces of pottery that somebody long ago threw away. We find broken pieces of buildings that have deteriorated since the time that they were actually lived in. And as archaeologists, that's our palette. That's what we're trying to work with in order to be able to understand a whole life in the past or a whole site in the past. We've just got these little fragments. Now, if you transfer that into thinking about the ways that we all work with fragments today, regardless of our creative professions, mm -hmm. we never have a complete anything, do we? I mean, no. if we're working no. with making ceramics, if we're working with making paintings, if we're working with making poetry, if we're working with making music, we start with like a little fragment, you know, like a little fragment of a tune or a little doodle. And we eventually craft that into a whole story. It's so true. It's exactly true. I think we do that in our personal lives as well as our creative lives every second of the day, really, because we're, we're going on the breadcrumbs and the fragments of you know, maybe knowledge that we're seeking for the day. Yeah, and thank you, uh, Monica, for yeah. sharing that philosophy of yours because 
our listeners, as you know, and as you pointed out, most are very, very creative, creative people. They think creatively, but I don't think any one of them have ever thought about it from that perspective. That's no, an interesting perspective you just shared. Everything is fragmentary. Everything is created from experience. And even people that you know really well, friends that you've had for years or your significant other, your partner, your work colleagues, they're always likely to come out with something that you didn't know, right? So there's another some other fragment that all of a sudden explains something that you had never quite realized before. So it's it's not just about physical stuff that's fragments, but it's also about ideas and perspectives and emotions and things that people share with you. Oh, wonderful. That's so wonderful. So that makes me want to ask, how does archaeological research inform your daily life and vice versa? So for one thing, whenever I break something, it's not so bad. <laughs> It's true. <laughs> I get a chance to see its, uh, you know, its insides and uh, and how it was made, and uh, you know, being an archaeologist is about picking up other pieces of broken things from other people's lives. And, uh, you know, when I'm making garbage, um, I'm just passing that along in the archaeological record for the future. So that's about the little, you know, the little things that happen. I think that also it gives me a a pretty long perspective on human behavior and human activities. There are certainly many things about human behavior that are suboptimal, but those behaviors have been around for a long time. And also positive human behaviors, you know, the ability to decorate things that don't require decoration is something that goes back very far in human history. And I think that that's a very hopeful sign. You know, if you break a figurine, it's natural that somebody will pick it up and with their delicate hands and fingers, they'll sit there and try to piece it back together. But that is, like you mentioned earlier, they have to have a keen sense of observation to see where this piece might fit to that piece. Now, they may be heartbroken because it may be something that was really a favorite of theirs, but they're piecing it back together. Yeah. I think we all like to do that. Is that true? Absolutely. You know, whenever we encounter something that we think of as broken, whether it's an object or a relationship, we think about how it might be made whole again. We probably should ask whether or not we should bother. I think that's, that's part <laughs> of breaking. Very true. And in the end, you know, what you have are the memories of that object or that relationship or that person that are the ways that you put together a, a fragmentary set of impressions for yourself. Mm, that's good. That's very interesting. Yeah. Now, we often see archaeologists out in the field doing research and basically digging up history. What is the reality of working as a team in these various sites. One of the reasons that I became an archaeologist and that archaeology was very attractive to me is that it is a team pursuit. You know, whereas being a historian or you know other kinds of fields are really a person working in an archive alone, but you can't do archaeology by yourself, which is important. Mm-hmm. Um, you need people who are on a team and 
you know, I'd like to talk about somebody who was a very important mentor to me, a man named Bob Powers from the National Park Service. And I worked for him for several seasons on an archaeological survey project that had a whole bunch of different kinds of people on it. There were retirees, there were professional archaeologists, there were students, uh, there were people who ended up going into very different careers. And he was very skilled at bringing people together into a team where everybody's best capacities could be made to integrate with other people's skills. And that's also what I've tried to do in the archaeological teams that I've had the privilege of being able to direct and co-direct. And, you know, that's a really great feeling when you have people who come into a teamwork situation who maybe are not experienced, but they get the opportunity in a supportive environment to try something new and be successful. That is the best part of archaeology. It's not, you know, what we find or, you know, the weather or what we've been able to surmount. It's the feelings of the people who've been working together. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of this unique moment in time, right? Like any particular archaeological season has a group of people who will never be in that exact same configuration ever again. But we carry those memories forward in a really wonderful way. I would think so. You have like minds and you're all moving towards a common goal. True. You're working as a team. And you'll never be there again. I mean, in that same capacity and and moment. So it's kind of a, a cool, creative way to really express creativity amongst a team. And I'm sure great friendships probably percolate out of that. Very much so, yeah. Very much so. We often think of archaeologists as camping, at least is how I think of it, <laughs> camping out in some remote desert area, sifting through sand and soil and, and maybe broken shards of pottery. But it's our understanding that there's such a thing as urban archaeology. Could you give us your thoughts on that? So many of the world's great cities are in locations that are, you know, perfect for trade or economics. And so when we think of cities like, you know, London, New York, and Mexico City, uh, Paris, many other global cities are located in places where, guess what? Ancient people thought that was a great place too. (laughs) And as a result, there are many global cities where every time they dig a trench for a new sewer pipe or a new water line or a new fiber optic cable or a new subway tunnel, they are running into archaeological remains. And so, for example, there is in London a crack archaeological team that is deputized to go to places where they're building new buildings or building subways. In New York City and downtown, right on Wall Street, you can see that there are some old archaeological remains underfoot. They've put glass over it so you can see it. Under Notre Dame in Paris, you can see the remains of the Gallo-Roman city. Um, The big dig in Boston was all about going through the many layers of urban life that happened before. So urban archaeology is absolutely something that is part of our archaeological repertoire. Usually, however, instead of like that Indiana Jones hat, people are wearing a hard hat and they're surrounded by bulldozers because it's a pretty noisy undertaking. Oh, yeah, I can yeah. imagine. <laughs> That's so true. Now, you've said in your writings that archaeology is, an, is not about old things, 
but it's a way of understanding materially the way in which people engage with objects in space. What are some of the things around us that give us an archaeological perspective in our lives today? So one of the things that's interesting about human beings is that we have a lot of stuff, don't we? Oh, yeah. yes. I mean, if you... <laughs> we all agree on that one. Yes, I think most people, you know, we would be lucky to say that we have, you know, too too much stuff. But all those things we bring into our houses on purpose. Nobody is coming to our house and, and delivering things that we don't want. And as a result, you know, everything about our lives is encoded in our special occasion clothing and our everyday coffee mug and the layout of our living rooms to be welcoming to people who come into our spaces. So we make these very deliberate choices about our objects and our spaces. And that is another way of being archaeological. You know, like when you go into somebody's house, you can tell what's important to them by what's displayed. You know, if, if you catch a look in their kitchen drawer, you, you can see the kinds of things that they use most often. You can tell something about what they must be cooking on a regular basis, which is all part of their identity. So everything about us is wrapped up in those objects, which is a very archaeological way of thinking about our surroundings. Mm. You know, you've, we know you're a writer and we know you're a published writer and we know that's one of your passions. Do you think that there is such a thing as a true writing process? Well, no. <laughs> <laughs> An honest answer. Yes, very honest. A real honest. honest answer. You know, I've, I've looked at things about writing very tangentially and you see sometimes students who are like, well, I want to be a writer. What what do I need to do to be a writer? And I kind of laugh because I say, you can't want to be a writer. You either already are a writer or you're not. Because if you are thinking about words as fragments that you put together, writing, I think, is the most powerful of the creative arts because it can be infinitely duplicated. If you are making something that's physical, like a quilt or a, a ceramic vessel or a painting, you know, you, you have to take a picture of it in order to be able to circulate it. But words can be repeated, copied, and distributed faster than any other kind of creative enterprise. And so words are incredibly powerful, but they're also malleable and they're changeable. And if you speak any language, you can use that language to put together something in writing. And you might think to yourself, oh, you know, I haven't got time to write. I haven't got time to be creative. What about your grocery list? You know, turn that into something fun. You know, think about uh, your other to-do list. Get a get a fun pen, and think about that as a creative approach to something that's mundane. I think that once you start looking for those opportunities to to do something creative with what's in your hand, even if it's a boring yellow pad of paper and a boring you know stick pen, wow, you can do something with that, and that's what I would advocate. I like what you said about the shopping list because 
Ninja can relate because she'll start a shopping list and then I will go add things. That are so random and so bizarre that you're like, uh, how, why are you putting this on my list? It's just a way of expressing it's, myself creatively. Yes, apparently. <laughs> Absolutely. That's an everyday opportunity for, for creativity. And I completely endorse that. Yeah. Well, thank you. Yes. And we know you have equated the writing process to the process of making music. Share, share with us your thoughts on that. So I'm very fortunate in having a circle of friends that includes artists who work in multiple media and also musicians who work on multiple instruments. And what I've realized by watching them is that, for example, an instrument can play many different kinds of music, right? So a violin, uh, we might think of as being associated with classical music when people first start to learn to play. But there's also, you know, jazz tunes for violin. There's also fiddle tunes for violin. And that same instrument can play a whole variety of different music. And the same is true for, for the writing process. And so, you know, if I'm writing a, a scholarly article with lots of jargon, I can pivot and write a LinkedIn blog post or I can write a poem, or I can write a book that is for a wider readership, or I can write an email to a student. I mean, it's amazing what I do in a day, actually, all the different kinds of writing that I do. And that, to me, is sort of like picking up an instrument and sort of meandering from one tune to the next. That's a, an interesting observation. Yes, very much so. Because in music, people will say, oh, I only love classical music or I only love country. But when they have the opportunity to listen to a great classical work, all of a sudden it changes their thinking and they go, well, maybe that's not so bad after all. And conversantly, the opposite has become true. I, I know when we ask people, they go, oh, well, I don't like classical music. We'll say, well, listen to this one piece and let me know what you think. If they can totally stay awake, sometimes it just relaxes them so yeah, much they, they fall asleep. Fall asleep. But writing is certainly like that. I love when they come back and they go, I love that. I didn't know I liked classical music or I didn't know I liked jazz. It, it's such a, it's interesting how we're so easily put into a very narrow road of what we prefer yeah. when we're just not exposed to it. And literature is very much the same yeah, way. Yeah, very much so. And, you know, when you think about music, that's also often very fragmentary. So if you think about, music that is associated with advertising that's usually a part of a song often classical music or music of the movies or if you want to think about how little snippets of music invade your head think about the concept of the earworm right oh gosh, you're like you're yes. in you're in a grocery store and you hear a song and you just you really don't like that song but you can't escape it it's going to be in your head all day or somebody walking down the sidewalk whistles a little piece of a tune that you really like and that fragment then gets in your head and you have a great day because somebody tipped you off to that little piece of music. Yeah. That's so true. Annoyingly true. Annoyingly sometimes, but yeah. still, yeah, true. Yeah. Uh, Monica, in this is a question we like to ask everyone. In five words or less, what would your advice be to people that want to live or be more creative? And you certainly have a lot of experience in that area. Oh, yeah. So here is my, I used up all five words. My <laughs> phrase is, 
what will you remember more? And let me explain that. So sometimes when you see, you know, like life advice or something like that, they're like, oh, you know, think think of your best life. What are you going to remember the most? No, no, no. This is not that thing. What will you remember more is the recipe for every day that you have the chance to do something that's slightly different, but not what you expected. You know, like your friend says, let's go sit under a tree and, and eat our lunch. And you're thinking, no, I have to answer these emails. You know, then, then the question is, what are you going to remember more? Are you going to remember more sitting and answering your emails or going with your friend and sitting under a tree? That's what I try to think about. Whenever I've got things to do and something pops up, I'm like, what am I going to remember more? Or my students are saying, you know, oh, you know, I've got to go and study this thing. And my friend, you know, asked me to go and do this. um, Or my dog wants to go for a walk or whatever. And I think to myself and I tell them, what are you going to remember more? Go and do that thing. True. We get pulled so many directions that probably aren't always the best for us. Mm -hmm. They're time wasters or they contaminate our thinking. And then we really don't enjoy those subtle little minutes that we can experience throughout the day. Like just simply smelling a flower. That's so true. So true. Okay, so um, now we're going to ask you the question that we ask all of our guests, which is if you could sit on a park bench and chat with anyone from the past, who would it be? So that's a pretty challenging question. I thought about being you know, disobedient and going to the future instead of the past. Uh-huh. Um, but, but I'll close in, in homage to my grandmother, my French grandmother. And, you know, she was a person who was always very optimistic and cheerful. And she had had an amazing life. Uh, she was born in 1899 and she passed away in 2001. And in her lifetime, she saw the first airplanes and she also saw people go to the moon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And her life was from, you know, a very ordinary background of village life. She eventually moved into a city. But the things that she saw, I don't think any human generation will see that range of technological change in their lifetimes. And so if I could sit and talk with her again, that would be beautiful. But because of the things that she's left behind, both the fragments of memory and the little objects here and there, I don't have to wait for that once opportunity to sit on a bench. I feel like she's always with me. And if you were to choose someone in the future? I would go and visit the people who will be the age of my great-grandchildren. I don't know if I'll have great-grandchildren, but there will be people there. And I would love to go and see what they do and what the world looks like. Because even though we often think of many things happening that are not so great, there are things that are still fantastic in the future. And I would love to see what those things are. Oh, that would be exciting. Yeah, that would be exciting. Uh, It could be wonderful or it could be a real challenge. Well, I think like most civilizations, they'll have the good and the the in-between and the bad. Yeah. It's, it's normal. And that's what the archaeological perspective tells us. Yeah. You know, that all the good capacities of people and all the capacities that we sort of wish we didn't have, but that are part of our 
you know, sort of intellectual, emotional, biological baggage, those things will continue in the future. And, uh, and yet they're going to invent some new stuff. It's going to be cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Definitely. A new iPhone. <laughs> A new iPhone. <laughs> the iPhone 45. Yes. yes. Exactly. <laughs> Well, Monica, um, you are truly living a life filled with discovery. And we're so glad you were able to share some of your experiences with us. I really kind of hate to end this because you've been fascinating to listen to. And I know our listeners are going to really enjoy this episode. Absolutely. It's so true, Rod. And and thank you, Monica. And if if our listeners would like to know more about Monica, we will have links for her under the show guest tab on thoughtrobepodcast.com so everyone can learn more about her and connect with her on social media. And please check out her website. Yeah, by all means, check yeah. out her website and her book. And her book, which we will have a link to. And it also has an audio version. Yeah, if you don't want to read and yeah, just listen. Yeah, if you don't want to read that, yeah. that Monica narrated, correct, mm-hmm. Monica? That's right. That's right. Thank you so much. It's been wonderful being here. I really enjoyed our conversation. And, you know, I encourage everyone to go out and uh, pick up a little fragment of time, of memory, of music, of thought, and put it together into some language for the rest of us to enjoy. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I'm really glad you tuned in today. We hope you enjoyed the thoughts and ideas we shared with you. We post a new podcast every week, so remember to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss an episode. So it's bye for now from my husband Rod and I, wishing everyone a great day.